you some things in our marriage uh, retreat that we had over the weekend. Thank you for those of you who were with us for your investment of your time. And we prayed, even as you, I'm sure, prayed that God would use that in, uh, in nudging you just a little bit in directions that would please him and bring benefit in your own homes, in your relationships, your marriage. And uh, it was certainly an honor for us, and it, it's an honor for us to be here with you again this morning. I think one of the things that we talked about is that marriage is really a, a, a commitment to an imperfect relationship because we're all sinful people. And uh, when we think about marriage, I think all of us can identify with, if you are married, if you're intending to get married, uh, you, you think of this person that is out there that God is providing for you that is going to be this wonderful completion and that you have this gap in your own heart and your life that you want this fulfillment. And, and that is true in part, too. But what you find out is that God is using you as an instrument in each other's life far beyond uh, that sense of completion. In fact, in many ways, as iron sharpens iron, man sharpens man, boy, it starts with the marriage. And relationships can be difficult. It can be hard. Uh, and it doesn't take a long time to realize that your spouse that you thought is going to be that completion in your heart and your life and everything's going to be wonderful because this is what I need. And, and you discover that doesn't work quite that way. And the things that you want marriage to fulfill in your life can't be fulfilled in that relationship in spite of Hollywood and romance novels and all the things that we are bombarded with. And you begin to realize there's something else that's going on. And I think one of the things, I use the illustration, which I just share briefly with you again, uh, pictures the, the attitude and the actions that come together to, to produce a productive and satisfying relationship. And that is, as someone said, they had a dream, and in that dream there was this banquet, and all the people were seated on either side of these long tables that were piled high with food. But there was a problem, because everyone's arms were strapped straight, splinted. They couldn't reach out, get that wonderful food, and feed themselves. And then someone discovered that while I can't feed myself, I can actually fix it and feed the person across from me. And they can do the same. They can fix the food and feed me. And in the process, while I can't feed myself, it becomes a partnership where you feed each other. And I think there's a principle in that that applies very much in all of our relationships, starting with our marriage relationship and in our family, is that we're not, we're not here primarily to be the beneficiaries of everyone else's gifts and kindness and care for me as much as God calls us to serve and care for each other. And out of that, there's great satisfaction that comes but it certainly puts things on its head in terms of what the world would like you to think that marriage and family and home is supposed to be. I can't think of a better passage for us to turn to. Perhaps you're familiar with it, and we'll turn to it. And as we mentioned, Samuel Johnson, the 17th century compiler, in a sense, of the Oxford English Dictionary, said people need reminding far more than they need instructing. 
And I think there'll be instruction perhaps for some, but there'll be reminding both in our time together now uh, and in Sunday school of some things that might be of encouragement and help as we look at this. this. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the Gospel of God according to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This is right at the end of our Lord's earthly ministry, and he is on the glide path to going to the cross. Um, and this is picking up where Wally uh, was sharing and Cole with the children here, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Let's read these first verses out of this chapter together. Follow with me, if you will, in whatever Bible you have. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that this, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our wonderful God, even as we open our Bibles, we would ask that you would open our hearts that we would hear your spirit speaking to us where we are and that you would be at work in our hearts such that as we leave this place this day that we would be encouraged to reflect the truths that your word gives us more importantly that your spirit would be at work in us that we would be changed just a little bit to be a little bit more like you lord jesus our savior and lord for your honor and glory as well as for our good and this we commit to you with thanksgiving as we look forward to what you teach us. In your name, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, to me, this is uh, both thought-provoking and, and in many ways, it's an amusing part of Scripture. Uh, there are a lot of things about this that as we look into it, you'll see are, are very worth pondering on and thinking about. We know at this point, this is 
very close to the end of our Lord's ministry on earth. In, first, in fact, verse 1, it says, He knew his hour had come to depart from this world. He knows he's on that glide path to the crucifixion for his people and for the resurrection. And verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So he's there with his disciples, knowing what's in front of him. And the disciples have gathered together to have an evening meal. It's a context of, of a meal together, not just, just a room. It's, it, they're, they're, no one has invited them to be their special guests. They've probably gone out to the local fresh market and brought in the groceries together and fixed supper. And in verse 2 implies that they finished the meal. And they're probably, in my mind, I, I see them sitting around with a cup of Starbucks in their hand and just, just, just kind of chewing the fat and talking about things. But all of a sudden, the Lord gets up. He takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist and and I can only picture in my mind that the disciples are looking at each other going oh my what's he doing it tells us verse 5 he poured water in a basin began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel now why is he doing that we're not quite sure what prompted him but I really don't think it takes a lot of imagination to suspect that some of what he's hearing them talk about is not particularly edifying. Um, there had been and continued to be a, a spirit of competition between the disciples. Uh, who would do the ministry the best and would be the most pleasing to the Lord and thus the most favored and who would get rewarded the most? If this doesn't fit your picture of them, I'll just read a couple of verses from other passages that sort of fill in some of the context and the thoughts going on. Luke chapter 22, verse 24 says, speaking of the disciples' attitudes, there was also a rivalry among them as to which of one would be considered the greatest. Or Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, and Mark chapter 10, we, we read about... Uh, James and John's mother, who, who's lobbying for her sons to have favored positions in Christ's kingdom. You're talking about a helicopter mom. Uh, she's looking to get them special places. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 33, when he was in the house, Jesus asked the disciples, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest, who's most important. I'm sure no one here would ever have thoughts like that, would you? Competition? Uh, teaching seminary students, I look at them and say, you ever have competition with your fellow seminary students as to who's going to be the best preacher and who's going to be the most used and who's going to have the biggest steeple to preach under? And, and they all look at me with a sense of, hmm, busted. I had a friend of mine years ago who, tongue-in-cheek, uh, we were talking about doing things, and he said, you know, we're all doing the Lord's work, you in your way and I in his. You know, if jealousy wasn't a big enough problem for them to deal with, quite frankly, 
from an outside perspective, the ministry that Jesus was having really wasn't doing very well at that point. The Nielsen ratings had been lowered significantly because Jesus, his popularity was taking a dip. Everybody loved to see this miracle worker who could raise people from the dead and heal the sick. It was fascinating. I mean, we, we miss that impact that he could have had on the crowds of seeing things that were impossible. And he could feed 5,000 people. You can always draw a crowd when you give them free food. But then when Jesus starts talking about the cost of discipleship, ah, all of a sudden, all of his groupies start bailing out on him. In verse 2, it says that Judas had already decided to get out. This is one of the 12, been with him for years, remember? Judas has concluded that uh, this kingdom of God that Jesus had been talking about wasn't the kingdom he thought he wanted to be a part of, and so he kind of came to the conclusion he had bet on the wrong horse, and he, he wants to get out. The other disciples don't know it. But he does. And you just think about this. And it makes me ponder on this very, this very fact. Here are these 12 men who Jesus has picked to follow him. And you'd think after three years of being with God himself on earth as the Savior that they would be a lot more mature than they were, wouldn't you? These are the people. These are, these are his Marines. These are his Rangers. This is the SEAL Team 6 only 12, that he's called to be the ones that he's going to found the church and he's going to use them to build his kingdom. And what are they like after these years? Bickering with each other? Jealous of each other? Picking on each other? It's so interesting. Look what Jesus does in response to this. He doesn't butt into their conversations. There's no place in it. And he looks at Peter and says, Peter, when are you going to grow up, buddy? He doesn't do that. And I was pulling this together, and I thought if somebody made the quip one time, they said, you know, what's the difference between the average man and a U.S. Treasury bond? And the answer is that a Treasury bond eventually matures. Even in the tension, even, even in this last hour, Jesus, when Jesus knows he's literally hours from the cross, he still is living out his character, his calling. He's not wringing his hands over these immature, these self-centered men. He chooses to continue to teach them really in the only way that works is first by example and then by instruction. Now, the practice of washing feet, as you probably know, uh, Wally, thank you for that. I, I've heard a lot of children's sermons, but not one about stinky, poopy feet. But this is, this is a first, brother. Thank you. Um, There's something that was done before a meal, usually done by the lowest servant in a household, but they hadn't been invited. This, they weren't guests. They were actually just together themselves. 
And they knew it's something that would be nice. It probably should be done. But quite honestly, in their minds, there was nobody little enough to take the position, nor was there anyone big enough to kind of put all of that aside and just accept that, comfortable enough in his own skin to do what was needed. And to their embarrassment, the one who gets up is Jesus. Which leads to this most interesting exchange recorded between our Lord and Peter. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter. I love it. You know it's not going to be boring when Simon Peter is being addressed. Nothing is recorded by any of the other disciples. Nothing is said about what they said. There's not even a thank you recorded. Nothing except the exchange with Peter He's been washing everyone's feet. He comes to Peter, who regains his composure. And as always, Peter has something to say. Verses 6, and then again it's recorded in verse 8. Peter says to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. You will not wash my feet, Lord. It's like you're the Lord, I'm the servant. I'm going to do these things. And then Jesus responds in verses 7 and 8. Quite honestly, this verse is one that we could preach a series of sermons on. It's one worth reflecting on in so many things going on in all of our lives. Listen to these words. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but later you will. There's something else going on. Now, we just kind of wrap up what Peter's talking about because you notice what Peter, off the wall, attempting to sound spiritual. Peter says, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Then you wash my head, wash my whole body. An incredible lack of understanding of what's going on, but that never stops Peter, does it? And the interesting thing to me is it, it seems so evident that when people are watching Peter says the right thing. It's, it's, you know, Lord, I'm the one that's a servant here. I, I really think Peter's convinced himself that he really is the humble servant. That is until, you know, when the rooster crows and Jesus has told him, and all of a sudden he is humiliated at his own lack of self-awareness, his own self-deception. So Jesus has their attention. He's given this demonstration. It says, when he washed the feet and put on the garment, he resumed his place. He said, do you understand what I've done to you? And uh, crickets. Nobody's willing to say anything. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I've done to you. Now, there are actually groups that take this passage very literally. And I uh, was invited to go on a retreat many years ago to speak out in the country to a group of Baptists that I didn't know were foot-washing Baptists. Never been around it. 
Never seen it. And during our time out in the country, everyone paired off with a person of the same sex to wash each other's feet. And I participated. And it was a strange experience in many ways, not the least of which someone washing my size 14 feet. But here's what I remember more than anything else. The biggest takeaway in my own heart as I left that place that I wasn't anticipating was that you cannot wash someone else's feet standing up. You have to kneel or bow. And that's stuck. And I'm not so sure that it would hurt us to do that occasionally. And don't get too nervous. We're not doing it here. <laughs> but I'd, I'd suggest that there's some principles in this that, that, that the Lord is giving us for all of us who are followers of Christ, all of us who belong to Christ as we belong to each other, all of us in our call to be servants. And I want to I briefly touch on three areas. The first of these is that to love is to serve. To love is to serve. This is the very same passage of Scripture, the same discourse in John chapter 13, verse 35, in which Jesus says to these disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you, what would you think he'd put in there? If you have memorized Scripture more than anybody else? Um, tithe? Nothing wrong with that. What does he say? The world will know you, my disciples, because you have love for one another. Hmm. Uh, we're Presbyterians, and we're, we're really good at thinking that the greatest and highest calling is to set each other's theology straight. And quite frankly, there is love in correct theology because bad theology can get you killed. Not being a joke. But, as I've quoted many times, Vance Havner, a pastor, who made the quip, he said, some people are as theological straight as a gun barrel and just as empty, too. You know, you watch a couple in love, and they can't wait to do for each other. When our older daughter, Katie, met her Nathan, and they fell in love, and they were together, oh, to watch them. What can I do for you? Can I bring this to you? What can I do for you? Let me hold the door for you. Let me serve you. I mean, I finally was like, hey, guys, this is disgusting. Would y'all just kind of quit? This is a bit much here. But here's the principle. And young people, please remember this. In your relationships, please remember this. Love can't wait 
to give. Lust can't wait to get. Let me put it a little differently. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it's interesting here, as he says, the world will you know, know you because of love. Verse 1 started off, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You know, going to the cross would be the greatest act of love. But before he even does that, he's showing the great love that he had for them in the little things, the tangible things, the practical actions like washing nasty, stinky Feet. To love is to serve. Second point. To lead is to serve. To love is to serve. To lead is to serve. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 26 and following, it says, and Jesus talking to his disciples, whoever desires to become greatest among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, even to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 15 and 16, this passage, as we look at this, it says, I've, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I think one of the most amazing things, and one that sets our Savior apart from all the other religious leaders in many ways, is that the Lord never called on his disciples to do things that he was not willing to do himself. And that's why the Apostle Paul, and there are actually many places, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ Jesus. Now, we can't replicate what Jesus did for us on the cross, but there's a sense in which the life that he gives us flows from that in order to do and to serve because of what he has done for us. And we never rise above taking those places of even the most menial opportunities to do that. When our girls were little widgets, you know, we lived in Augusta, and in, in the early grade school, uh, Augusta, Georgia had a, a large um, Suzuki music program. And if you know much about the Suzuki program, it's an interesting way of training they start little tiny kids off learning to play the violin. And we still have these gradiated sized violins that the, the girls used. And they start the littlest ones off with a Cracker Jack box with a, a tongue depressor glued on it just to get the feel of the instrument under their chin. And then they graduate to an actual little violin that actually plays. And the first, the first tune that everybody learns is Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. 
Now, here's the interesting thing about this is because as, as is always expected, they, there's a concert at the end of each season and all the Suzuki students of all different levels of accomplishment are up on the stage and they all stand up and they all play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to start the concert. And if that's as far as you've gone, then you sit down. And those that are remaining play the next tune. And if that's as far as they've gone, they sit down. Until it's left that there are just a few, or maybe even one or two, that can play an amazing piece on the violin. But this was the takeaway. You're never so great, you're never so important, you're never so above everybody else among your peers that you don't start like everybody else and you play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, we, we know of her, her husband in the early 50s uh, went down to try to bring the gospel to Ecuador, to the Aka Indians. You know the story, perhaps, through the Gates of Splendor, the movie that was made. Elizabeth Elliot, of course, he was killed, he was martyred. She married again, a man, a man named Addison Leach. Addison Leach was an interesting man, um, and he sadly died of cancer years later. But he was the dean of, of, of students at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. And, um, quite a leader in many ways. And uh, he, told, he told the story that when he was, uh, he was the dean of students there at Grove City and they lived on the campus, he got a phone call one night that there was a food fight going on in the, in the boys' dorm and perhaps he needed his dean of students, students to go and, and check on, see what's going on and what needed to be done. And so he starts to walk across, he put on his clothes, walked across campus, there was the men's dorm, lights blazing. He could hear all kinds of things going on, but there obviously were lookouts because he didn't get very close before everything went stone silent. And he walks into the hallway and there is food all over the walls and the floor. Obviously, somebody had been having a raucously fun time. And it would have to be cleaned up. And he was thinking, hmm, the janitors, are we going to leave that for them to have to do? And then he thought to himself, you know, I'm going to make all these guys come out. I'm going to make them clean this up right now, get this done. And then he thought about it a little bit more. And he went to the janitor's closet and he got out a bucket and a rag. And he put water and soap in it. And he went out and he started cleaning the mess off the walls. And he said a little bit later, not very long, he said the door started cracking open and an eyeball on the other side of it looking. And he said one by one the doors opened up and the men came out and they too got buckets and rags. And they had a wonderful time cleaning up together. To lead is to serve. You know, it's easy to do when there's a crisis or a sickness or accident, some sort of natural disaster. But you know, the interesting example here that the Lord uses is not one of a crisis. It's just a simple need. 
a creature comfort. And that's serving. Wow. That's not hard to do, is it? Until you start being called to serve the problem people. You think about this, you know, the difficult ones, the truth is, all of us are problem people. You know, look at this example and, and the disciples. They're problems. The more you do for them, the more they expect. You know, there's a saying that says, give people a little bit more than they expect. Pretty soon they start to expect a little bit more. They're always the difficult people, including those that follow the Lord. It's not much different from church today, is it? Steve Brown, you know who Steve Brown is? Key Life Ministries, down from Florida. Wonderful sense of humor. I remember him saying at one conference, he said, there's nothing wrong with our church that a few key funerals wouldn't fix. And he said he was just kidding, but I know him. <laughs> Jesus served the difficult people just as much as he served the ones that we might think of as being the deserving ones. But here's a kicker. What about the destructive people? What about the Judases in your midst? You know, the ones that are out to get you? Verse 2 tells us the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Verse 11 says Jesus knew who was to betray him. You might have thought Judas was gone, but he's there. He's with them. And he's, uh, he's uh, flying under the radar. He looks the part of a devoted disciple, but he's really angling for his exit. What do you think was going through Jesus' thinking as he washes the feet of Judas? What did he do? What do we do with the people who are out to get us? Well, if Jesus is our mentor, then we serve them too. Jonathan Edwards in his diary was talking about some Christian brothers who were talking about the sin and the horrors of sin in, some, in this brother's life. And Edward said that it struck him that it would be a good place for him to use to lament his own personal sin rather than to join the chorus to condemn someone else. To love is to serve. To lead is to serve. Third and last, to last is to serve. What do I mean by that? Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. King James Version says, happy are you if you do them. I think in some ways it would have been sufficient if Jesus had left him with a command to serve. He could have said, you know, if you got problems with this, just deal with it. He knew, he knew that, that, that they had been created by God to serve. We need to serve. 
We need to get out of ourselves. My position, I think, in some ways has given a, a little glimmer in talking through to who knows how many people in counseling and administration and teaching and pastoring as well, too, that so often the most unhappy people that I've ever been around were the full-time non-contributors. We, we know from research that people who retire to do nothing often die much sooner than those who refire into a new calling and a new sense of direction. And the importance of that as well. Even people who are in depression many times are encouraged greatly and helped by getting involved in doing things and not necessarily feeling like it, but in doing it, the feelings begin to change. We were created to serve, to contribute. We're called to serve in our homes, starting with the marriage and then our family, and then our church, and our community, and our workplace. Each in our stage and age of life, each with our capabilities and gifts, wherever we are, ultimately serving the Lord as we serve one another. But I find it so fascinating to realize that what we are the recipients of in the grace and the mercy of Christ who came not because we were worthy, not because we've earned a place before him that why he couldn't possibly not want to take care of us and look after us, but the very opposite is the reality in my heart, and I would dare say in your heart as well, that he came because I couldn't do for myself what he would do for me. And from that, he's given me life. And then we have the privilege of being his instruments to bring about love and life in other people's lives as well as we serve. What an amazing privilege to be the recipients and then the channels of that as he gives us opportunity. Isn't it amazing to be a Christian? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for life, life in yourself, life together. Would you work in our hearts such that we would refocus ourselves and our attention away from, first of all, trying to satisfy our own needs and looking to others to make us happy and satisfied, to being a servant. And from that, Lord, that you would give us that sense of encouragement that we need, each one of us, that you in your time and in your way would use our efforts, even our efforts, sinful as we are, to bring about great good, lasting good, even eternal good in our own hearts, in our marriages, our families, all that we come in touch with. 
In this we give ourselves again to you, Lord Jesus, with thanksgiving. Amen. so much, Dr. Richardson. Um, this is the morning that we have communion. We do communion once a month at our church, so if, if you haven't got the elements, you are free to get up and grab them now. You're not going to disturb anyone. They're in the front. They're in the row in the middle. Um, they're also upstairs in the balcony. Just a, a few words. You do not have to be a member uh, of, of our church to take communion with us. You do have to be a member of the household of faith. So If you are here this morning and you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save you uh, from your sins, the table is set for you. And we would love to have you participate with us. Uh, If you're not, if you're still putting these things together, if you're still figuring this out, this is a great place for you to be. And we're glad that you're here. Um, Would love for you to bring your questions, your doubts, your concerns, and grab me or Wally or Philip or any of the elders. We would love to meet with you and explain to you why, uh, why, why we are so constantly amazed by the grace uh, of one who, who loves us as, as he does. So uh, let's pray once more and then we will head to the table together. Father, just simple elements um, still in a, in a container from COVID actually, from those days uh, that we use. But yet you promised us in your word that those who, who, who partake by faith um, commune with Jesus. And so that's what we pray this morning. Would you meet with us? Would you... Would you assure us uh, at how we are loved by you? We pray these things in your name. Amen. I think you remember on the night um, that Jesus would be betrayed. Uh, He took bread and after he had blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Jesus then took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you.
Father, would you now take these pictures, this picture of the ultimate act of service that Jesus rendered to us, and would you use them to strengthen the faith of your people? That's our plea that you would do so today. Strengthen our resolve against to fight against sin, our assurance, and our love for you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, It Is Well With My Soul. <clears throat> My sin, oh, the bliss of this glory. 